0: and
1: Broadway radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, July 8th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Welcome back from your trip. Uh, Last week you were at the International Theatre... Uh, Excuse me, the International Thespian Festival in Lincoln, Nebraska, Uh, and we talked to you from the Minneapolis airport. So tell us, uh, how is the festival?
2: Phenomenal beyond belief, as always, uh, to see more than 4,000 kids descend on Lincoln, and nice kids. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I'm always afraid that they're going to be very ageist, um, because I, hmm. I went into the classroom and expected, oh, God, here's this guy with gray hair, the little he has. Um, and uh, it wasn't that <laughs> way at all. The, the kids were so bright, um, the critics that I was teaching. That's what it was, a workshop on uh, critics, uh, how to be a critic, and I'm telling you, um, They're so plugged in. They know exactly what was going on. There was talk about how uh, if Betsy Wolfe had done Carousel, would she have won the Tony? Uh I mean, things like this. I mean, they're really into it. Um, The productions were wonderful as well. They did a terrific production of Freaky Friday of Newsies. was really good um, as well. Um, So top-notch stuff. And there are four theaters on the campus of the University of Nebraska. One has 2,200 seats, which is exactly where Les Mis and Phantom come when they play there. Book of Mormon's coming there soon, so something rotten. And the kids get to play on that stage, which must be very exciting. But there are three other spaces as well. One which is about two ninety nine. One one ninety nine. which in fact was uh, uh, given through a gift of Johnny Carson. Uh, it's the Carson Theater. Um, but it's just so nice to see so many kids around, so polite. Um, and then every night there's this phenomenal party. And I went out to. Um, One of the tables, and there was an empty seat and I just sat down. Um, I didn't know anybody. And I, I started talking to the guy next to me. So tell me about you. Tell me about you. Oh, where do you teach? Blah, blah, blah. And finally, he said, is your name Michael? And I said, no, Peter. He said, yeah but you do those podcasts with Michael don't you I mean, I, so, so we're getting out to Nebraska I'll tell you at least that. <laughs> so uh, anyway uh, he didn't know which was which but close enough close enough indeed so <laughs> it was a really great week out there and I'm telling you teachers students find out about the thespian um, association um, you can have one in your school and um, you can be part of this which is really great because to see kids so supportive of each other cheering each other on like crazy because they know how hard it is to put on a show so you really have the target audience the best audience and uh, you should be a part of it while you're in high school or while you're a high school teacher you you owe your kids that teachers Uh, make sure it happens
1: oh that's awesome i'm so glad that um that we are making it out to nebraska hello nebraska that's right. right The Michael, as uh, as, as uh, previously mentioned, is, of course, Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael.
3: Good morning. And uh, I'd just like to say briefly, the, I believe, Peter, the International Thespian Festival, that's been going on
2: for years, Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, a long time yeah. but we
3: also have that you know we have had that, and now more recently we have had all these wonderful uh, things like the Jimmy Awards and all of these other uh programs focused on young, theater. yeah. Yeah, the junior,
2: junior Theater Festival that I go to in Atlanta every year is for middle school kids, so that's we're even younger there, So which is really quite wonderful. Yeah, it's so, it's so good it's happening because in union there is strength, of course, and kids need to see that there are other people doing what they're doing and uh, find kindred spirits, so it's really great.
3: Absolutely and you know there are so many bad things I think we would agree
2: yes happen- yes there are
3: in- happening in the theater and this is good this is a total win-win situation from the standpoint of the producers for future audiences and the, the kids themselves and and just development of talent and I think it's a really all of these things are absolutely fantastic.
2: as I always say the only guns that these kids are interested in is Annie Get your gun and it's very helpful that's the case.
1: With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Nancy Anderson is joining us by telephone. Broadway fans know Nancy from plays like A Class Act, Wonderful Town, Sunset Boulevard. Uh, Nancy, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning in the beautiful uh, Finger Lakes region of New York to uh, talk with us.
4: It is my pleasure. I've been up for hours. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> why, why would you do that?
4: <laughs> I don't know. I've been having, lately. I've had this strange thing where on my day off, I'm so excited about all the things that I can get done that I get up early. It's terrible.
1: Uh, you, well, you are not talking to my wife because it's <laughs> not supposed to happen on your day off. You know, <laughs> no. <laughs> These things. So, what are you doing up in the Finger Lakes? Tell us about this.
4: Well, um, my friend, Matty O'Brien, uh, who I worked with years ago on a project called White Noise. Um, he's the book writer of a musical version of Anne of Green Gables. And um, he's such a talented writer. And I've adored him ever since I met him uh, during White Noise. And uh, so he actually sent me, I think it was in a text. He asked me if I wanted to play Marilla in this production, and I was like, is it yours? Then absolutely. And um, he and Matt Vinson, the composer, have written this incredible uh, new take on Anne of Green Gables. And when you think of Anne of Green Gables, you kind of think of Little House of the But in fact, they have created a world that is you know, part Little House on the Prairie, part um, uh, uh, Spring Awakening, part uh, Hamilton. They've created this incredibly new and vibrant um, sort of folk rock approach to a traditional story with um, really impressive, in in particular, impressive um, um, music writing because uh, the, the vocal sounds are all the, the vocal scoring is all like four six eight, eight ten part harmony. And so it has this lush, thick, um, sound to it that, uh, that particularly for the theater, um, just kind of thrills the soul. So this is what we've been working on. It's a, been a relatively short, a two week rehearsal process to put up a brand new show, <laughs> and it has been really exhilarating and uh, challenging. But we have a a cast like I've never seen, and they are unbelievably talented, and every single one of them is a ferocious stage animal. And uh, they're just attacking this material with such vibrance and love.
3: Before before we started this recording, uh, we were talking, and James commented that the artwork and the logo design for the show are really creative.
4: Yeah, I mean these guys have it all together. It's 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 a wonderful example of the younger gen, younger generation, um, uh, sort of taking the reins, and they so they not uh, the uh, producer, the young guy as well, Justin, and he, you know, they they have the social media down. They have the media, all of the, um, of advertising down. They they really have a kind of tight ship in terms of the way that they're presenting this and uh and and a really fresh take on everything uh and i think that what's remarkable is although it appeals to you know it's it's by a kind of young group of of creators and it's um appealing to young crowds we're having the experience up here already in the first weekend that uh it appeals to people from eight to eighty years old and um uh we've we've gotten accolades from you know the oldest patrons of the finger of uh, the merry-go-round playhouse saying this is the best musical i've ever seen so it's really thrilling and, and it and has great heart uh it it uh I, I really anticipate great things for the success of the show
1: so this is uh as you mentioned running at the merry-go uh, Merry-Go-Round Playhouse in Emerson Park uh, through July 25th if folks want to get up there and see it. Tell us about the... Have you spent much time in the, up in that area of northern New York before and how beautiful it is?
4: Um, not a lot of time. Um, I, Many years ago, I was a, um, a visiting teacher at Elmira University, which is a few hours south, and uh, got a lot of chance to drive around in this area. And it's absolutely stunning. These lakes are are truly gorgeous and each one of these um little towns up in this area is a sort of old industry town so they they all have um a a beautiful collection of um of the big victorian houses and all kinds of interesting architecture and and great um scenery and then beautiful farmland uh the whole cast uh last weekend the whole cast got together and went to a drive-in movie (laughs) Uh, <laughs> <ow>. <laughs> one, one of the guys actually rented a U-Haul pickup truck, and we backed it in, and we sat in the truck and watched the movie. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's amazing. It's what was amazing. The So, yeah, we're really enjoying it. Uh, yeah, it was good.
2: I want to know what the picture was. What did you see? <laughs>
4: uh, it was The Incredibles 2.
2: Oh, good. Which exactly good?
4: is hilarious.
2: Nancy, I, I I know that uh, your husband has just gotten a very nice job um, out of the city, so uh, I, will you be moving down south?
4: Um, I think that we'll be uh, sort of splitting our time. Uh, what's interesting is that because both of us have really active careers in the region, uh, we're gone most of the time anyway. I uh, see. The, the amount of time that we really get to spend in New York is often limited, so I think To a certain degree, even though he um, has this job, I think that we're probably going to be in New York about the same amount of time as we always are. I should um, mention
2: uh, that the uh, talented director I'm talking about is Ethan McSweeney, uh, who uh, I certainly saw a lot of wonderful work he did while he was at the George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Uh, Oh,
4: yes. He talks fondly of of meeting with you regularly, then.
2: So uh, yes, those were good times. Um, and of course, um, as much as I admire Ethan McSweeney, I certainly admire Nancy Anderson, because I'll never forget you telling me about your days when you were growing up in Needham, Massachusetts, and being part of the drama club there. And That's uh, right. And how much you admired that your drama teacher really spread the wealth in not casting favorites um, all the time, where a lot of people, of course, would say, uh, oh, he just doesn't like me. He doesn't get me when you didn't get the part. So I thought that was perfect. I also remember you telling me that you were in summer stock, that there was a teacher who said to you, all right, yeah, good. So you got a good voice, but what about the lyrics? And, um, and that you really responded by saying, oh, I really have to pay attention to lyrics and really sell yeah, the lyrics.
4: Funny because, yeah, that was that actually happened to me when I was 12 years old. That was a summer camp.
2: Wow. Ooh. And
4: uh, that was a summer camp in Dover, Massachusetts, called um, uh, the Charles River Creative Arts Program. And I had a teacher there who, whose name was Jack Megan. He's now a head of artistic um, development or whatever at um, Harvard University. Oh, nice. yeah, he's got a big title there. I, I don't know the exact title, but, um, but he well, he must have been only 20 or 22 years old mm. when he kind of hauled me up short. And he said, great, you're a cute little songbird. You got a pretty little voice now, but what are you singing about? And <clears throat> so that sort of set me off at the beginning of my career, really paying attention to lyrics and so my notebooks from about the sixth grade on are uh, my school notebooks are all just lyrics of the the American songbook. <laughs> <I> just wrote <laughs> Rodgers Hart lyrics, Cole Porter lyrics, Irving Berlin lyrics over and over and over again, and that's how I would learn to understand the sen- the, the actual sentence structure and therefore the meaning and the the emotional meaning of of, of the lyrics. And that's a very interesting thing because. Uh, Maddie, when Maddie approached me about playing this, emeralds, is the old, sort of the old ditty of the mm-hmm. cast, and, and most people wouldn't, you know, although I am uh, getting older, people wouldn't really think of me as the old ditty in the show. Exactly And so I was, I was sort of wondering why Maddie thought of me, and uh, when I saw the song that he wrote for me, he's written the lyrics as well. Uh, he, he's written this character. <clears throat> Where she's this um, sort of buttoned-up, uh, repressed uh, um, disciplinarian that adopts um, Anne uh, initially to work on the farm. She she they, she and her brother have actually sent for a boy to be in the orphanage. They need a boy to come work on the farm, and they get sent this girl. And Marilla originally wants to send her back, um, but of course Anne wheedles her way into her heart, as you would in the musical, and. Um, and so Maddie uh, has Maddie and Matt have um, bizarrely given a character of Marilla the eleven o'clock number, um, uh. and and they've they've created this um, character that in her uh, as Anne sort of emotionally unravels her uh, and inadvertently reveals the. Um, the sort of initial wound and shame of this woman and, <clears throat> uh, and has written an eight minute aria, wow. essentially, <laughs> a folk aria, uh, 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 that where Marilla reveals, uh, what happened and why she is this way. And, uh, And that's when I understood why Maddie called me, because that's because of my history with really focusing on the lyric and um, my uh, my sort of armchair obsession with with psychology. Uh, uh, This is this is the type of um, song that really attracts me. Uh, I don't know. Did any of you see this show I did in New York called Pen? by Julian With Davis. It was a 40-minute one-woman musical. Oh, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. A sure, yeah. nomination. For
2: that yeah, 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 yeah. At, yeah, at uh, the uh, 12 that. West 36. Yeah, you're right.
4: <laughs> yeah, it was about a woman who is sort of descending into her obsessive-compulsive disorder, and it starts out funny, and then it becomes decidedly not
5: funny.
4: And so this, this concept of unraveling is one that I adore, because uh because it's, and a song can really um, aid you in that because it it allows you to burrow deep into the soul of a character. Uh, so so that well, this is uh, really really fun for me in, in, in this show. Well, I to guess dive that, into a character like that.
3: I guess that unraveling thing uh, you were able to explore that again in uh, Sunset Boulevard.
4: Oh, my gosh. Um, that, <laughs> so I don't know what you guys think, but from where I sit, I feel like on the list of usual suspects, on the list of the gals that would be considered for under study study um, for Glenn Close in Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> I think Nancy Anderson would be dead last on that list. Uh, I just, and when I, when my friends found out that I was cast in that part, all of them were like, what? <laughs> they couldn't even believe it. And, uh, and even I was, I was, I, when I got called in, of course it was Tara Rubin, who I adore. And she tends to call me in. Uh, she, she often will call me in as a last resort when, when the cat, yeah. when the, the creative team is, looking and looking for what they want and they don't find it, there's a lot of times where she's like, well, let's call Nancy and see what she does. <laughs> <laughs> Which sometimes, you know, and I'll try. I'll usually try it, but sometimes it puts me in a situation where I'm like, I go in for something I'm not right for and I'll just crash and burn. But, um, and in this case, <laughs> I thought that I was so wrong for it that I could, truly make an idiot of myself because this is an iconic role and this is Andrew Lloyd Webber and Patti Lapone and Betty Buckley. And I mean, this is a part that is defined by the greatest music, not just defined by Glenn Close, but, but in, in, in the sort of, um, uh, legend of it is, uh, carried by the great voices of, um, musical theater. Right. So, uh, And so that's not necessarily what I am, you know, I'm not Shoshana Bean and Julia Murney and Stephanie Block. That's, that's not the, the, the vocal grouping that I'm in. Um, and so, and also I didn't know the show. I'd never seen it. I didn't know the music. Like I, I knew the songs from hearing Patty sing the songs, but uh, I really didn't know it. And, But I remember at the beginning I got the call on a Monday and it was an audition for a Friday and I and I was sick um, and so I said well if I'm better by Friday then I'll go in I told my agents and um, but because I was sick I couldn't really sing that week I was like this is crazy and so I was watching bootlegs of Betty Buckley on YouTube to try <laughs> to learn it and um, all the while just sort of. Uh, uh, living in the shadow of, um, these types of this, um, type of actress like, um, Patty or Betty and, um, and also Glenn, of course. And, um, I, I just thought there's no way there's, a, there's, um, uh, there's no way that I can fit into this, um, Type because I'm just too perky and too. Uh, I, I have a youthful. Even though I'm I'm the right age, I'm the I have a youthful energy, mm. and that's kind of you know just bubbly, and um. So I I was constantly canceling this audition the entire week, and uh, I was talking to Ed Dixon on the phone and telling him how ludicrous I thought this was and that I was going to go in and make an idiot of myself. I don't know the songs. I don't. I, I I don't want to go in front of you know Lonnie Price and and uh, and butcher these songs and Ed and Ed said well I saw you do the pen so I think you can do anything <laughs> <laughs> and then I uh, I hung up with him and I thought about it and I thought well, what if it isn't a grand dame? What if it's not Doris Swanson? What if it's uh, Lillian Gish? Mm. Now, Lillian Gish was 16 years old with the frothy, frothy long hair and the round face and little bow lips. And she was this young entrepreneur who was one of the faces of the silent film. I mean, right. arguably one of the most famous. And if she was then exactly my age, and she um and and she had been forgotten by the industry, which Lily dish was not many others were, of course, and she was forgotten by the industry an industry that she invented, or at least felt she did as much as a six i mean the sixteen year old doesn't invent it, but the sixteen year old is so self-centered that they think they invented it uh, and so the you know they um she might. At the age of forty-seven, say, "How dare you? How dare you? And how dare you?" And so suddenly, I was like, "Oh, I I could do this because that was me." I don't know if any of you remember me when I was, you know, twenty-two years old, but I had my own long blonde hair and this round face with little bow lips, and I was getting up there doing all these little period things all over the place, and and so in fact, that was me. And so then I then I was able to kind of internalize those songs, and the lyrics are truly brilliant. I mean, those two um, major tunes of hers are are extraordinary.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And so then I was able to go into the audition and not try to dress up. I didn't try to look older, but I didn't try to look younger, and I didn't try to look like Norma Desmond. I just went in as me. Really put together, you know, and uh, and I just went in there and gave the gave the performance of those songs that I I would give if I was doing it in a cabaret act or a concert, and um, and the, the 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 audition story is a funny one. I don't know if you have time for it, but um, I ended up leaving there thinking I gave the best audition for a part that I will never ever get. And then Lonnie, Lonnie called me a week later.
5: <laughs> well, good for so, you. That's yeah, right. It
4: was a really, really. Uh, I I. It was a really incredible experience, and working with Glenn Close was extraordinary. She's she's just. Um, I don't have enough superlatives for what an incredible woman she is. So
1: Nancy, can I ask you to tell us a story about May Fourteenth, Two Thousand Seventeen?
4: Yes. So, <laughs> um, Glenn had had a few days that she was out in London. She would gotten very sick early in the production, so I think she was out for not very many shows, but it, but it may have been three or four days because she got the flu, and um, and of course in theater in theater um, days, you know, in theater time, three days of a show, whether it's Glenn Close as your <laughs> your star seems like months but um <laughs> so i think it loomed large in the producers minds and so i was told when i got in there they said you know make sure you're ready
1: <clears throat>
4: and of course i'm i'm normally the last minute Lily, you know i i i, I remember i was um uh, about to start rehearsal, and I was having lunch with my friend Linda Muggleston, who has understudied every great Broadway star for the past ten or fifteen years. Um, she's now uh, in uh, My Fair Lady, but um, she said, "So have you got have you got the part under your belt?" And I said, "No, I ha- they haven't even sent me the script or the score," and and she said, "Nancy, you need to go in there knowing the part." <laughs> <laughs> and so, and we only had a two week rehearsal period. And then suddenly the next day we get this um, schedule for the first day and I have a two hour music rehearsal all by myself. And I realized I was in trouble. And then we got to the first day of rehearsal and I watched Glenn close do an initial read through of this script. And suddenly I realized what was happening, that this was not, I've only understood you one other time. I understood it, Jennifer was called a wonderful town, but, um, uh, this was not just your average respect. This was not like, oh, you just know the part and you go in there and you just you make it happen. This was a situation where, in order to fulfill I had to create a performance not only as if I was the star, which is why I was hired. I was hired because I was willing. To, I was somebody who was capable of creating a star performance, but also enjoyed being in the chorus, which I enjoyed. Um, <clears throat> but I had to create a performance that would be delivered by a, by a Nancy Anderson that is a movie star, because the, the show relies on not only the character, but also the star the sort of legendary star power of the leading lady. And I don't have that kind of, you know, I mean, there's certain people in the musical theater business that know me, but beyond that, nobody knows me. So I have to carry with it that level of status. And, And also understanding that quite possibly over half the audience might get their money back. If they're there to see yeah. Glenn Close, yeah. mm-hmm. and and I don't blame them. Um, and so I not only did I have to create that kind of character, but I also had to know that I I had this part in me to the degree that I would be impervious to to that um, that reaction, you know, to, to because as an actor, you're always sort of um, osmosing the audience, you know, through you, you feel their energy very, um, closely. And, um, and so I had to be able to be open to them, but not absorb their disappointment. And, um, and so I did it. And I also had about 10 to 12 rehearsals to do it because you have understudy rehearsal. Uh, and you know, for Nancy Anderson, me the actress to create a star performance like that, I basically need four weeks rehearsal and four weeks previews. We had two weeks rehearsal, one week preview, and then I had you know 10 or 12 understudy rehearsals. Hmm. Um, and so I, I rehearsed this in a way that felt like I was weaving the part into the inside of my body uh, because I because I understood what, I, what was required of me. And, and so I was ready to go on. But Glenn is a warrior. She um, is so dedicated to her craft and so dedicated to her fans and so loves to be up there that she worked through many colds. She often was getting, you know, as everybody was getting colds, it was, you know, February, March of in New York City. So she was getting colds, but she never missed. And uh, and so I I was I started to watch her and I said, oh, no, no this woman is not going to miss because if she can even whisper the part, she gets out there and does it. And she also has incredibly strong vocal cords, um, that she can go out there and give this rip roaring performance. And you, and any singer would be like, wait a minute, what's up for your vocal cords. And she gets up the next day and she does it again. And it, it's really extraordinary. And so, um, uh, so I started to sort of I started to relax. By May, I was like, you know what? I'm not going on. That's this is just not happening. Mm-hmm. And it's just as well, you know, as far as the audience is concerned, it's just as well. Um, and. So I had developed a strange, you know, uh, I had got, become a little bit lax, you know, and I, and on Sundays I had a ritual of my husband and I would take a yoga class in the morning and I would come back and, you know, running a tiny bit late. I, I, um, this particular day, um, Ethan asked me, he said, you want to go out to dinner after the show? And I said, yeah, but I got to come home and shower. I'm a mess. You know, I grabbed, th- I remember I grabbed three crackers with hummus on it. Uh. <laughs> and ran out the door to the train. And it's Mother's Day, so I'm talking to my mom on the phone on the train platform. We live in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which is, you know, way out on the N Express.
5: <clears throat> mm-hmm.
4: And um, I'm standing on the train platform, and all of a sudden, I get a call, and it's my stage manager. I'm like, huh, oh, what's that about? And I, and I fear oh, I'm going to keep talking to my mom. And then all of a sudden, I realize, this is the call. <laughs> 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 and so I... Uh, I because I'd become so he I I click over and my my stage manager's voice is like two octaves higher. He's like, Okay, um you're on today. Where are you? And I said, On a train platform in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And he said, When will you be here? I said, Hopefully on the dot of half hour. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was really ridiculous. And because I had gotten a little bit relaxed about it, I had stopped carrying my scripts with Uh. me back and forth, (laughs) which I usually did. So I was dressed in my yoga clothes, unshowered, didn't have my scripts, was going to practically be late for half hour. And I was going on in possibly one of the biggest roles in musical theater on the stage, on the palace stage. <laughs> I was like, This is bonkers. So I called my husband and I, I said, I'm on. He's like, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> and so I called the stage manager back. He said, what do you need? I said, you know, I told him the few things I needed from my dressing room. I needed like, I needed my makeup and my magic tea. I have this licorice root tea that is my, gives me my voice. I'd also not really spoken that day. I definitely hadn't warmed up my voice. And so there I was on the end train with all these people riding into work uh, and, and a day in the in the city or whatever. And I just start singing on the train. <laughs> <laughs> I started warming up full voice and I was like, You guys can just take it because I have a job to do. No nobody looked, obviously. And um so then I get there and uh, I have to go straight to the stage uh, uh, because I had requested to rehearse the uh, um, the New Year's scene and the end of Act One because I don't know how much you know about understudy rehearsal, but there's only so much a stage manager can know. Uh, oftentimes you get into these rehearsals and you know people think that they know the show inside and out, but you don't actually know, particularly physical mechanics of how people are kind of, maneuvering each other around the stage, you know, the new year's scene is a a dance scene. And, and it is the moment that you have to really connect with Joe Gillis. Like you really have to make that love affair happen there. And, um, and so, uh, I get there and Michael Xavier, who is Joe Gillis, who's brilliant was there waiting for me. He had sprained his ankle the night before. So he's limping. I mean, it was, it was hilarious. And, uh, So we go through that and then we go through the close of act one, which is the kiss on the couch. And um, by that time, it's uh, 12 minutes to curtain. And um, I, by the way, I've never worn the costumes. The one lucky Mm -hmm. thing, you know, there's a 40 piece band on stage. And we, because conducting a 40 piece orchestra is a crazy thing. Um, Kristen Blodgett had arranged for her associate to have a rehearsal. So the understudies got to rehearse with the 40 piece band one afternoon. So I had actually sung in front of that band, which was invaluable because when you get right up against that band, you can't hear yourself. So that was a really lucky, but i had never worn the costumes and all, a lot of my costumes, they were all from like the original production from various touring companies. So um, in particular, the full beaded New Year's dress you know, it's a full beaded gown had six or six inches of un- upturned hem. So it's heavy as crap on the bottom of it. And you're supposed to be doing <laughs> this whole tango, I mean, it's, you know, so I'd never worn any of these things. And so I get down there and, uh, and the, um, the dresser, Jim, who is one of the best dressers on earth um, was ready for me. And the makeup artist was there and she says, so I understand you like to do your own makeup. And I said, only if someone had ever taught me how to do the makeup. So she's doing my makeup. They're upstairs, you know, announcing that Glenn is off and returning tickets. It turns out only about 200 people returned their tickets and everybody else stayed, which was pretty remarkable. Um, And uh, so I went on there and just channeled. I just channeled the performance. And I remember uh, sort of first entrances you know the big entrance the monkey funeral with one look and salome and then the exit and uh, so on our stage you would go you go up the grand the huge sort of scaffolding style staircase complex all the way up to the upper platform take the elevator down on stage left go around uh, um, out of the wing take the elevator downstairs to glenn's dressing room and when you come out you come out sort of facing the the actor green room area, and there's a few steps down before you go down into her dressing room and so uh, everyone was there waiting for me and they started applauding and I went as I went down the stairs, my legs gave out underneath me it's like i faint I had a conscious faint, and mm. I fainted down the stairs. my body just oh. crumpled wow. and because because it was like the spell had broken for a second,
5: mm.
4: and then I got through the show, and the same thing happened in the second act. Um, after with one look, that whole um, uh, studio sequence. When I exit, I exited stage right, and there's a spiral, a steel spiral staircase uh, down to the downstairs, and I collapsed down the the staircase. It, I mean, it was a very I've never had that experience before, where my body gave out. And then later I was talking to an opera singer friend of mine, and she said, oh, you didn't have enough fuel for that
1: performance. Three hummus and crackers I, and I didn't cut it. Three
4: hummus, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's how it went. But it was one of the most exhilarating days of my life. And then Glenn was couldn't have been more gracious. Gracious. She, she did a public um, sort of uh, announcement apology to her public and thanked me for going on. It was really, I mean, it was really an incredible day.
1: The entire Broadway community rallied around you, and uh, I couldn't—you uh, you couldn't get away from social media to see uh, so many accolades and and so many people so excited that you went on. I, I knew there had to be a, quite a story about it, which is why I had to ask you about it. So yeah, let's, sorry uh,
4: it was so long. No, uh-huh.
1: absolutely. I'm sorry we're taking up so much of your time on your day off. So no problem. No problem. I want to remind listeners that uh, Anne of Green Gables, a new folk rock musical, is playing at the Finger Lakes Musical Theater Festival. And uh, it's playing through July 25th. It's right now happening at the Merry-Go-Round Playhouse in Emerson Park. Of course, Nancy Anderson is starring in it. So you must get up there and check it out, that beautiful town up there. Nancy, thank you so much for spending so much time with us on Broadway Radio. We really appreciate it.
4: It's my pleasure. Great talking to you guys. Forever. Forever. And ever. And ever.
0: And beyond. Beyond forever. For so much longer than forever. Mr. Blythe, if you ever attempt to engage me, I never will respond. If you can hear what I'm thinking right now, let me say you do not exist in my world beyond today. Nothing you say and What you've done So let me say this to you You may be hoping The worst has passed But the tempest is over And done with quite fast But let me assure you My anger is destined to last Forever
1: So Peter, you saw... Uh fiddler on the roof in Yiddish at the National mm. Yiddish Theater, Folk's Bene. Mm. <laughs> We've been saying it wrong for the uh, last, you found out? Benah, 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 Ben-ah actually, yeah. <laughs> so National Yiddish Theater, Folk's Benah.
2: Right. Did I get uh, it? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a tough way to, um, to glean because... Um, the last part of the word is B-I-E-N-E. Uh, but bena is the way it's pronounced. And um, you'll get a lot of benefits if you go to see uh, Fiddler at uh, this theater, which is way down near the Statue of Liberty. Um, <clears throat> but it is definitely worth the trip. This is my – literally my 20th production of Fiddler on the Roof. It just um, – it's, it's the 20th time I've seen it and um, 20 different productions, 20 different times. I will confess – and I never saw the original production on Broadway. And uh, it opened in 64, and I was living in Boston. Every time I came to New York, it was sold out. And then after a while, I thought, oh, I'll just wait for the touring company. And I didn't see a touring company until 1968. So this was the hit that has, to this day, is the longest it took me to catch up with. So I can't say uh, anything about the original production, but what I will say is after this performance, on opening night on July 4th, Sheldon Harnick said to me, This is the production that is closest to the original production in the spirit of what it was. And I thought it was a sensational production. Uh, It's amazing to me how wonderful it turned out, given the limitations. First off, um, I am told that virtually no one in the cast speaks Yiddish. They all had to learn it phonetically. Wow. Wow. You know that's that's amazing to me. Um, learning lines is tough enough, but learning lines phonetically when you don't even really know what you're saying—that's that's amazing to me. Secondly, there's no set to speak of. Um, there are 26 people in the cast, and there are 12 in the orchestra. I mean, that's pretty amazing for this small space, and uh, they certainly fill the space and the sound by Zolman Maltek, uh, who is a a, a wonderful musical director. Um, it it really seems like you're hearing a full orchestra and you're seeing a, a major production. It's amazing. How well they do Stephen Skybell Plays Tevye One of the best I've ever seen If maybe even The best I've ever seen So um, Tremendous I, I remember Some years ago When Theodore Bakel Did a revival And uh, there's the scene In the second act Where Kava Is with her Gentile boyfriend And Tevye comes in And I mean This is a serious moment I mean He sees her With the Gentile And he knows What's going on He knows that She's interested in him This absolutely Will not happen As far as he's concerned And uh, Theodore Bikel gave a look as if as if he just saw somebody's pants fall down and underwear revealed. It was a comic look. It got a laugh, and I thought that was horrible because this is a serious serious moment. Steven Skybell gives the look of somebody who's horrified who for a second is in denial, is hoping what he's seeing is not what he thinks it is. Though way down deep, he knows what it is. Um, a, a tremendous moment. And I always judge Tevye's by that moment since I thought, so, since I saw Theodore Backel ruin that moment. So, uh, terrific. Um, Mary Ill, I guess it's probably I-L-L-E-S, I don't know how it's pronounced, is Golda. And I have never seen a Golda so tender and so realistic <clears throat> early in the show when she has to tell, Cytle that um, indeed these are the realities of life you have to accept the man that is chosen for you because we are a poor family and that's all there is to it and done with such love and care but also with uh, a matter of fact that this is the way life is and you cannot change it I've never seen that same scene played so wonderfully so Who else do we have in the show? Well, we also have Jackie Hoffman as Yenta. Now, immediately, you're thinking, oh, what a hoot this is going to be. Jackie Hoffman? Oh, my God. No, there's no scenery. She chewed it all, Not at all. She is a human being here first and foremost. That doesn't mean she's not funny. She's very funny, but she trusts the material totally. And as a result, she's giving a terrific performance. You wish there were more of her. It's hard to believe how small a role Yenta is when you think of it, because when you think of it, she comes in the beginning when she says she's going to set um, Seitzel up with Laser Wolf. She comes in the end when everybody's leaving Ana Tefka. But when you think of it, all three daughters are making their own decisions, so there's no Yenta around at all. But I'll tell you, she really makes her scenes work so wonderfully by not overplaying them. And again, I certainly have to credit the director. And who's the director? joel gray uh who has done such a phenomenal job of stressing one of the great things that happens in joseph stein's book i don't think there's any musical that i have ever seen that does so well in alternating a serious scene with a comic scene immediately following a serious scene immediately following a comic scene. It's amazing. It's almost like watching a baseball team and watching teams get up in different innings. It's astonishing to me how, how that happens in this script. And I have never seen a director do it better than Joel Gray did in this production. So um there are certain um certainly uh screens on each side of the stage giving supertitles and if you're russian well you can read them in russian too but of course most of us will be reading them in english and um i will say that some of the lyric changes um are 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 not all we could hope for now, for example, one of the great things in matchmaker is the fact that at the end of the song, the girls say, "Playing with matches, a girl could get burned. Well, the translation here is playing with fire, a girl could get burned because you know the, uh, lyricists know that it's always harder to set lyrics to an existing melody than it is to just start r- lyrics and give it to your composer and say. Get a song out of this So um, We have to forgive um, uh, Shraga Friedman uh, Who did the translation For not getting getting that uh, Little pun in there Because um, I guess The word in Yiddish Just has um, Too many or too few syllables Whatever it is And uh, he had to do What he had to do um, it, We also miss um, Tevye's Into Life singing Here's the father I tried to be And um, The Laser Wolf singing Here's to my bride to be. Oh, what a lyric! Huh? I mean, the idea of using that three word phrase and matching it up with a hyphenated term. I mean, that, that uh, Sheldon Tarnock really is one of the best we've ever ever had, and uh, it really comes through in Fiddler, even if you don't always see it on the screen. Um, there's um, there there are many times that uh, it's fun to look and see what. Um, It's up there. If you know Fiddler well, you will certainly know what I mean when I say such lines as he sold him a she-goat, but he went home with a he-goat with a proper proper double chin and belly. Um, Wasn't it yesterday that they were playing in the yard? So uh, all these uh, little twists on songs that I imagine most of our listeners know uh, very, very well um, are entertaining for their own sake. But, I'm telling you, um, if you don't even look at the screens, if you just watch it on stage, and certainly if you know Fiddler, you will have an amazing time at the Achievement tier. Uh, I, I think it's one of the best revivals I've seen in a long, long, long time. So congratulations to the theater, to Joel Gray, to the cast. A tremendous achievement.
1: So, uh, Michael, I,
3: uh, <laughs> actually, yeah, that's kind of, kind of we're going to have to be, I can start on this one. Um, the play I'm about to tell you about, uh, first you need to know very quickly why, it has the title that it has because the title is Teenage Dick. And it's, uh, you. what you need to know right away is that it's loosely inspired by Shakespeare's Richard III. So that's what that means. <laughs> um, uh, I'm sure the title, uh, you know, obviously attracts attention on its own. But, uh, but just to clarify, that is basically what it is. This is a play by Mike Liu, or Liu, L-E-W. L-E-W. Uh, it's a co-production of the Ma Yi Theatre Company and the Public Theatre. It'd be being performed at the Public Theatre, uh, directed by Marz von Struppelnagel and choreographed by Jennifer Weber. It's not a musical, but there is a, a one or two big dance numbers in it. Um, and it, uh, I would say this was an interesting situation. Uh, I saw the play on Monday, July 2nd, uh, and I wasn't sure what kind of an audience there would even be, because it's in the middle, you know, or around that start, I suppose, of that weird holiday week that we had, but it was a packed house and um, very enthusiastic for the first 15 or 20 minutes, I would say, Uh, really uh, lots of laughter uh, at what was was intended to be very, very humorous moments in the play. And people were responding to um, the uh, allusions to Richard III and other uh, Shakespeare plays. Also, um, there is a scene where the the students are being taught about Machiavelli, uh, and it seemed like a very savvy audience and really responding. But then uh, the response really kind of waned, and and so did mine because I think that there's a lot of good in this play and a lot of talent on the part of the playwright, Mike Liu. But I I think that a couple of more drafts might have been. A good idea, because it just seemed very scattershot with uh, trying to cover too much territory um, only only a few of the characters and the plot points echoed Richard III, Third, um, others not so much it, it, it was really trying to reference maybe too many sources and to combine it with a modern day humor which sometimes worked a lot and other times did not. Um, another thing is that the character. Of Richard, um, he was very, very different from from Richard III. He uh, he started out seeming quite similar, very manipulative and and cold blooded. But then, um, in the wonderful performance of Greg Mosgala, uh, he exhibited a lot of vulnerability and and heart. And so I didn't. I'm not sure that I, I think that those elements in his personality were combined very well in the writing. Uh, uh, as for the actor, he is a really great actor who I'm sure many of our listeners might have seen uh, last season in Cost of Living at Manhattan Theatre Club that was, that was a really extraordinary performance. And Greg Mosgala is, um, is a disabled actor. He has cerebral palsy, but and he is you know he's, he's very, very open and even jokes about it, uh, uh, one might say. Uh, on his uh, website and elsewhere. Uh, And one of the other characters uh, in this production of Teenage Dick is also disabled, and that is the actress Shannon DeVito in the role of Buck. She's in a wheelchair throughout, which she manipulates (laughs) expertly. Uh, So... This was really interesting in, in having not one but two disabled actors in, in this play, uh, and one of the main reasons why I'm really glad that it was performed. Uh, the other actors were uh, – just one second – Marinda Anderson as Elizabeth, Alex Bro whom many of our listeners may have seen in Red Speedo as Eddie, uh, Sasha Diamond as Clarissa, and Tiffany Villarin as Anne. Uh, there again, some of the uh, character names echo Richard the Third; others not so much. Um, I think... I would say I, – I certainly hope that Mike Liu continues to write, and I, I would almost suggest that he take another shot at this play because I think with some um, honing and editing, it could be really, really excellent. There were many parts of it that the audience uh, did respond to very vocally, and you could tell that – that everyone was following the story and invested in the characters but other places where i thought it just got a little scattershot so uh we'll see if this play has a future life but i'm glad i saw it down at the public
1: all right so uh next up peter and michael both got a chance to see on a clear day you can see forever down at irish rep uh so peter why don't you start us off with on a clear day
2: well, <clears throat> back in the 60s, people were always saying, um, gee, I listened to the album of House of Flowers and how could this show fail? And, oh, I listened to the album of Candide and how could this show fail? And uh, hmm. soon afterwards, On a Clear Day became one of those as well. Wow, what a score. My God, listen to those lyrics by Alan J. Lerner. What beautiful melodies by Burton Lane. Oh, my God, how could the show have failed? And it always does. Um, I'm sorry to say, I did see the original production way back when in Boston. When um, Learner was famous for overwriting, uh, and it was one of those four-hour evenings, and so many songs um, that I remember, Marriage a la Mode, Mom, uh, certainly didn't make it to New York. And ironically, the, the songs that did make it to New York were not plentiful. They were only... Um, a dozen songs in the score at best, and um, they're quality songs, though, so uh, even though there aren't many. But it's always been the book that's been the bugaboo, and so many people have tried to fix it. um, Certainly there was that revisal in 2011 when uh, Harry Connick uh, found himself dealing with um, a man and a woman. Um, I guess I should explain what I mean. This is a story of Daisy Gamble, who wants to stop smoking. She winds up going to, um, I guess, a psychiatrist, who um, puts her in a trance and finds out that uh, she's reincarnated. She once was Melinda Wells in the 18th century in Britain, and my, he's so fascinated with Melinda Wells That um, he keeps on calling Daisy back and she thinks that he's interested in her and finds out later that he isn't. The way she finds out is a terribly contrived way. She's in his office alone. I don't know what she's doing there alone. I don't know how the secretary let her in. Um, And um, she's futzing around his desk. I don't know why she's doing that. Uh, Suddenly she happens to hit his tape recorder, which just happens to be in the sequence where um, he's talking to Melinda and she finds out Uh, It is a good motivation for her to sing one of the great torch songs of all time. (laughs) What did I have that I don't have now? A phenomenal song. Um, But nevertheless, is there a better way that um, she could find out besides the tape record? No, there isn't. Yeah, that isn't even the biggest problem in the show, I'm sorry to say. The problem is you never, never, never are convinced that um, Mark, the psychiatrist, winds up loving Daisy Gamble, but that he really loves Melinda. I um, mean, For all his protests at the end, for all the Come Back to Me song that he sings, which is a very nice song, got a lot of cover recordings at the time, the fact remains that we are never convinced that it's Daisy Gamble he's interested in. And the real question is, why isn't he now? Now, let me bring up why that's um, an issue. (sighs) Daisy has one of the greatest charm songs in the history of musical theater when um, she first describes how she talks to her flowers. And she makes them grow. And uh, she sings a wonderful song called Hurry, It's Lovely up here, in which she has a number of terrific, terrific rhymes uh, that are just <laughs> – uh, some of them uh, are, are a little fanciful and a little E.Y. Harburgian, I'll grant you. But hey, Rhoda Dend, Courage Little Friend, Everything Will End, Rhoda Dandy, Climb Up Geranium, It Can't Be Fun, Sub-Geranium, RSVP Peonies, Pollinate the Breeze, Push up Azalea, don't be a failure, mm-hmm. uh, which was repl- replaced in the movie with come give it lista." preview of Easter. Uh, I guess Daisy came from Boston because uh, she doesn't pronounce her um, ours at the end of words. But anyway, my point is, how can you not fall in love with that girl? You know, that's and, and that's a problem that Lerner set up for himself. He made her so terrific in that song, and yet, for the rest of the show, there's a talk about how she always says, you know, before she makes a statement. Um, she's a flippity gibbet uh, she's silly at times, but she's not in that song. Now, you might say, well, in that song, because she's so devoted to her flowers, okay, fine, but still, I don't understand how a man isn't intoxicated with interest with this lady who has just sung this terrific song, and it seems to be so irrelevant to him that um, I just don't know what's wrong with him. The other part is, we're dealing with a musical here, and if he's supposed to be in love with Melinda, shouldn't Melinda sing? And in the original production, she gets all of one song, Tosi and Kosh, which is a lovely song, a terrific song, beautifully <laughs> evocative of 18th century. You can really see ladies and waitings walking into court um, with this beautiful, beautiful Burton Lane melody. And what's it, it also advanced? advances the action, ironically enough, because by the end of the song, Daisy comes out of the trance and becomes Daisy again. So that's a very interesting moment. It's the only song Melinda has. Now, in the movie, of course, Barbara Streisand played the role, so you know there was going to be more than one song for Melinda. Um, And um, so... They had her sing She Wasn't You. Originally, the song was He Wasn't You. I'm um, sorry. I did it wrong. Um, originally, the song was She Wasn't You, uh, in which uh, Lubber talks about um, how Melinda is the only woman for him. Um, but it became He Wasn't You in the movie. And Charlotte Moore has done that. She's dropped Tozy and Kosh, which has been dropped before. Um, and um, and she's uh, has um, Melinda sing uh, He Wasn't You. But still, one song. And this is the one we're supposed to be so – he's supposed to be so interested in? Uh, I think that's a bit of a problem as well. Anyway, um, (laughs) I'm I'm not sure the clear day can ever work. And there's that famous story about somebody – I think it was James Goldman who came up to Lerner at Intermission uh, and saying, Alan, this show's terrific. I mean you you really have me guessing. I have no idea how it's going to turn out. And Lerner says – said neither do I so um, that obviously indicates a very fundamental problem the production of Irish Rep Melissa Errico's fine, um, a little low rent uh, in the way she plays Daisy, I'll grant you, um, but um, she's fine. I think Steven Bogartis is excellent, excellent as the um, psychiatrist, as Mark. That said, um, what Charlotte Moore has done, it's not necessarily a bad move, is um, basically eliminate the character of Warren, who was played by William Daniels in the original. Um, Daisy and Warren were a couple. And um, he really wanted her to stop smoking because uh, smoking, even in 1965, was starting to be um, a little declassé. And he's very uh, concerned about how the people who hire him will uh, think about having a wife who smokes. So that's the motivation. Now here it's simply that Daisy wants to stop smoking, which is fine too. Yeah, but um, but you do avoid that um, triangle business of uh, shall she choose Mark or shall she choose Warren. But the thing is, ultimately – what does it come down to? I mean, Warren, uh, wasn't much of a threat in the original and, uh, and he did have a song called wait till we're 65, which is really shoehorned in, in this production. I'm sorry to say, um, it doesn't make any sense where it is and why people are singing it to her. But, um, but it is a clever song. So, so anyway, yes, I'm sorry to say that Clear Day is once again not redeemed. Uh, as many people have tried it, um, it's it's just uh, <laughs> it's just too hard to fix, apparently. Um, and uh, but I will say that Charlotte Moore gave it a valiant try by at least doing um, many different things, including um, eliminating the boyfriend. That it, it makes Daisy stronger. That she wants to stop smoking for herself. That is a good idea. So. Um, uh, but, oh, oh, that oh, score, yep,, yeah. yeah.
1: all right, Michael, what did you think?
3: I agree with everything Peter said. I think uh there's general agreement also about <laughs> the quality of the score, um as opposed to the book, and that 's why people keep trying to rewrite it uh to one degree or another. Um, uh one thing I found interesting was that uh yeah, specifically in this production, I think that uh daisy 's motivation to stop smoking is that she wants this job at this place called Latimer and Latimer. And apparently the company is very, very anti-smoking, which I don't know if that sounded so right to me for 1965, but I don't actually, you know, I wasn't, I can't really <laughs> recall because uh, I didn't smoke then and I don't smoke now. Um, a boy Uh, So, yeah, but uh, there were there were some interesting thoughts. I don't think that eliminating Warren necessarily was a bad idea, but I I was not persuaded by many, many of the changes that Charlotte Moore made in her adaptation. Um, I I just think that it's, uh, you know, a good try, but a a lot of things just didn't work. It's ironically um, uh, the best. Production of On a Clear Day that I saw, and I have not seen many, but was the 2000 Encores production with Kristen Chenoweth and Peter Friedman, directed by Mark Brokaw. And that was a concert adaptation by David Ives. And honestly, I I do, do not remember the details. I have to see maybe if that exists on video somewhere, but I remember that the book really basically working very well in that. And I think it was probably just due to the rewrites being limited to judicious cuts. Um, So I really want to see if I can revisit that somehow. Uh Um,
2: and the- I did not see that. Ironically enough, I had a speaking engagement and I was out of town. I did not see that. But I will point out that this is the sixth production of Clear Day I have seen, which does point out how much people really want to make it work. I'm sorry. Go on, Michael.
3: Oh, no, no, it's fine. And and uh, clearly the uh, – let's see. Uh, special thanks uh, for this production. Among the special thanks are Liza and Jenny Lerner. So uh, I guess that's the Alan J. Lerner estate. Uh, it seems like the the states of everyone involved are, are very happy to have this show uh continue to be worked on that that um that broadway re- revisal uh you know it was not that long ago and and this is a completely different uh approach than that much closer to the original but but sure. still still quite a few changes i um Think I think a lot of the reason why the Encore's one worked so well is Kristen Chenoweth is one of those people who just has so much innate personality that it really radiated. Uh, and that's the kind of a person that you need for this show. I, I think uh, Melissa Erico really did a very good job, and I, I appreciated her uh, – what seemed to me a, a, a Brooklyn or a New York or perhaps New Jersey accent. I, I, I like that she did that because I uh, – then I, I'm sure it was intentionally to contrast with the British accent of the Melinda character, which uh, she did do. But uh, oddly enough, was was um, rather light. I thought she didn't she didn't stress the Britishness. Um, but yeah, Peter's point about how how can you not fall in love with Daisy is is a, is a very good one, and I think that's maybe a major problem at the crux of the book of this show, and maybe that's why. Um, it has never really worked. Maybe that issue needs to be addressed. Um, but significantly, I, I, I'm I, pretty sure that at the end of the original version of the show that uh, Daisy and Mark do end up together, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so that uh, very interestingly was changed for the movie. It's implied that they may uh, get together in a future life, but they don't just walk off into the sunset together. So that... That is an interesting uh, thing, maybe that was a better thought on uh, the part of Alan J. Lerner, who wrote this screenplay as well uh, but the irish rep i i 'm glad I saw it i don 't think it really worked i in addition to the the uh two leads who peter mentioned i I want to mention John Cadilla, who played uh the uh, uh melinda 's eighteenth century lover Edward Moncrief, who got to sing basically got to sing uh she wasn't you as what became a reprise in uh, uh so in act one now we have uh Daisy first sing He Wasn't You. Uh well she's billed as Daisy here in the, yeah, <laughs> in the right, program, right. but it's the <laughs> act, you know, um as Melinda. And then uh not long after uh Edward and Melinda do it as a duet, but mostly Edward singing it. And uh so the um so that that's how that issue was addressed. And yeah, I I agree that Wait Till We're 65 didn't work as an ensemble number, but we can understand why they didn't want to cut it from the show entirely. Um, So uh, who knows uh, (laughs) when someone uh, will try this show again and, and how much they will rewrite it. A friend of mine told me I should rewrite the book. And I said, well, I think that they um, I think they have gone to the wells several times already. And I, I don't wells,
2: know. Wells. The wells. The wells.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Michael, here's, here's what you do you make Melinda a character in 2018. And when you regress, when she goes back, it's Daisy Gamble who Mark falls in love with because she sings how he is Lovely Up Here. <laughs> so you know, it's they go. They don't go back to the 18th century. They go back to 1965. So uh, so we'll wait till uh, 1965 to uh, to enjoy the person that he should be falling in love with in the first place.
3: Well, I don't uh, think. Uh Uh, Peter specifically said this, but what happened in the revisal was that the modern-day person was named Davy Gamble, and then the uh, person that he turned out to be reincarnated from was a a woman. Uh, So that – a woman from the 1940s, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Jesse Mueller, her big breakthrough role. Mueller,
3: and that, that's when when we all went, oh God, who is this woman? She's nice. really great. She came out of that production smelling like a rose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, um, Harry Connick, unfortunately, was all wrong for for the role of the the psychiatrist. But uh, yes, we do have a, a very strong cast here at Irish Rep. So if you'd like to see a version of On a Clear Day, uh, you can see Forever, which does. Keep most of the songs uh, that and uh, most of the songs, all of the famous songs, certainly, um, and played uh, by a a very nice,
2: small ensemble. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But the leprechaun in the room here is the (laughs) fact a lot of people have been saying, wait a minute. Irish rep. What does this have to do with Ireland? I mean, yes. uh, you know, yeah. I, I when I opened the program and saw that Charlotte Moore had adapted, and I said, Ah, okay. Well, there's the Irish connection. So uh, that's uh, that's why it's an Irish rep. So um, Moore is an Irish name, isn't it? So close. Enough. Oh, oh, yeah. But I mean, she's the she's the artistic director. Oh, I know right? that. I know. But since uh, yeah. she wrote it, since she wrote it, therefore uh, it's an Irish writer, so to speak.
3: Oh, I I I see you. Yeah, because it does seem that in the past that they have always had some some Irish connection, either in the story yeah, sure. or the or the, or the, uh, the, the, the source material or the, yeah, whatever. Sure. Yeah.
1: Peter, last week we talked about Carmen Jones at Classic Stage Company. Uh, Jan and Michael gave their reviews already. So why don't you weigh in and tell us what you thought?
2: Oh, I thought it was terrific. Um, it, it, it's, it's a magnificent uh, show. And ironically enough, um, most people forget that between Oklahoma and Carousel, that Oscar Hammerstein had another hit, you know, <laughs> and that was Carmen Jones um, uh, Oklahoma opened in March um, and Carmen Jones opened that December, so uh, it was really uh, impressive that this man who had been thought of as doubt and out had two hits in a year now granted. Carmen Jones only ran about a quarter of the time that uh, Oklahoma did, but that still meant 503 performances, which was very, very impressive in those days. And what was also impressive was the fact that he was taking an opera, a very well-known opera, needless to say, the 1875 Opera Carmen, and um, – transformed it uh, to Chicago, from Seville to Chicago. And what he also did was uh, do it for African-Americans, which, leave it to him, you know, to do that, because he wanted everybody to be carefully taught to welcome all races and creeds. So, and he really provided um, many opportunities for for black uh, performers, because there were 109 in the original cast. So, it does classic stage on 13th Street. You get 100 fewer people. There are literally nine on stage. Um, and um, it's a small space, though. And it's been reconfigured to essentially be um, like arena stage. Um, the, the stage is in the middle and the audiences are on all four sides. And it's almost like you're in a boxing ring, which is not um, – quite irrelevant because a boxer will turn out to be very important in this story. But at this point, we start out with um, uh, Joe, who is very much in love with Cindy Lou. He's in the army, and Cindy Lou is his girlfriend, and she's this lovely little thing, um, a very Hamish girl, to uh, mix a metaphor. And... um, She'll make a very good wife, and she loves him dearly, and he loves her dearly. But on the scene comes Carmen Jones, who is really one tough cookie, who, uh, who makes very clear up front, if you get involved with me, that's the end of you. And that's indeed what will happen. It will be the end of Joe for getting involved with Carmen Jones, but he should have taken the girl who loved him dearly. So uh, it's, a, it's a galvanizing role. And Anika Nani Rose is certainly up to the challenge. Um, she has a don't fuck with me, fellas, look that is just incredible. And it, it it is so sensational in the way that she stalks her man, knows she's going to get him when he handcuffs her at one point because she's taken into custody. Um, she <laughs> doesn't matter. She turns around, rubs his back, you know, with her back. And I mean, she she knows how to make a man uh, very much involved with her, to say the least. So. So it's uh, just terrific to see the contrast between her and Cindy Lou, who has a dress that looked like it was just bought at Woolworths. So, and it's very smart, too, to, um, that Hold Ward has put her in a, um, a fiery red. Uh, costume, uh, and with fingernails to match exactly perfect <laughs> color coordination there with fingernails and dress and uh, fiery orange is who this lady is. So very well sung, terrifically, uh, performed. And, um, in addition to, uh, a Nikki, Roni, uh, Nani Rose, Clifton Duncan is really, really fine as Joe. Well, um, what's going to be the problem here? Well, as I mentioned, boxing turns out to be an issue because Husky Miller is a big champion. He comes on the scene and, um, Carmen is attracted to him. The problem is that Joe was supposed to take Carmen into custody because she had done this uh, infraction. And um, she vamps him to the point where he lets her go. And now as a result, he is in trouble. She has gotten him in trouble. And so he has to stay in a room so that the MPs can't find him. And Carmen wants to go out. So that's the problem. She can't stay in love with a man who's going to be um, essentially incarcerated, self-incarcerated. So she wants to go out and have a good time, and uh, that means uh, Husky Miller, the champion. I mean, after all, uh, this—he's got power, he's got fame, uh, you know. So and he's interested in her. Uh, what's interesting is he calls her heat wave. That's the term of endearment he has for her. And David Aaron Domain. Uh, phenomenal in um, the new version of the Toreador song called Stand Up and Fight. So in fact, Joe does want to stand up and fight Husky, which really is pointless. I mean, you're going to beat a professional boxer. So it doesn't end well for um, Joe or Carmen, needless to say. Terrific little production. John Doyle has done very well by it. Nobody's playing any instruments. Uh, those days seem to be gone with John Doyle. It's been a while since we've had one of those. And I don't, I don't think too many people are going to miss that. Um, but beautifully staged, moves like lightning um, not long, no intermission 90 minutes maybe, uh, seems less, um, and the chance to get Carmen Jones doesn't come up very often, needless to say, because uh, not just because it's not that famous a title but also because it's hard to do because you're essentially doing an opera I mean, it's not the whole opera of course, and it's even shorter now than it was when it was done on Broadway back in 1943, but still, it's a demanding show, and uh, certainly, classic stage company john doyle and the cast are up to the demands
1: okay so that is a third positive review here for uh, carmen jones at classic stage company uh michael and jan raved about it last week michael even suggested that it might be ready for a transfer what do you think about that peter
2: I'm all for it. Um, uh, <laughs> the logical place, of course, would be Circle of the Square, but that is going to be occupied for a while with the Tony winning revival of Once in this Island. So, uh, but um, New World Stages, that would be nice. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. yeah. it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be uh, boxing ring style, but, uh, but uh, it could be very nicely reconfigured for uh, New World Stages. So, yeah, that would be nice indeed. And God bless um, Anika Nani Rose, uh, who certainly is uh, now a big star, to come to 13th Street and do the show. It's very nice that she would do it. So good for her.
1: All right. Next up, we are going to talk about The Clunch's production of Laura Bush Killed a Guy at the Flea Theater. So, Peter, tell us about this.
2: Well, you know, you never know what you, uh, you're going to see when you when you see the title of a play. And um, for example, if you go to see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you're not going to see Virginia Woolf. So I didn't necessarily know if I was going to see Laura Bush when I went to see Laura Bush killed a guy. I mean, I guess I, I assumed I would, but I didn't know what exactly what it was going to be. It turned out to be a one-woman show. And frankly, I have to say that I resisted it terribly because – <laughs> I just didn't want to go back to the Bush years. I just didn't. And even though the actress who's playing the role is very accomplished, and um, and says to us essentially, in, in really virtually in these terms, um, don't doesn't Judge Bush look good to you now, considering who's in office now? And uh, the audience gave a, a, a hearty uh, moan and chuckle at that. Um, the fact remains is it wasn't much fun for me to go back to the uh, to the bush years, and um, I I couldn't really take it very much um, to be reminded of. What happened then, um, the weapons of mass destruction thing, and and there's a lot of rationalization here. The fact that when 9-11 hit, you may recall that George Bush was in a classroom and um, a secret service man whispered in his ear that this had happened, and he just sat there. Um, In this play, Laura Bush says, isn't it wonderful that he was so calm when everybody else was running around screaming and um, uh, panicking? Well, that's one way to look at it, but it's not the way I look at it, and I don't know if it's – any way that somebody else would look at it also there's a picture of George Bush on the set so you have to look at that all night long so so I guess this is a show for staunch Republicans who really believe that George Bush was a great man and a great president and I know there are people who who feel that way Um, so if you're that type of person you might enjoy Laura Bush uh, killed a guy which in fact uh, she did do. She admits this on November 6, 1963. Uh, she wound up going through a stop sign and killing somebody. And she said one of the reasons that it all died down, not just the fact that the family had a lot of money and power and, and was able to uh, bury it was the fact that only 16 days later. John F. Kennedy was killed um, in Texas as well, where um, Laura Bush's accident happened, and so um, people were preoccupied, and it was easier for it to to die down. So, so anyway, again, um, if you're a, a staunch Republican, you might enjoy Laura Bush killed a guy.
1: Well, you won't see it at the flea because it closes today, on July eighth. <laughs> uh, but
2: perhaps I mean, this will move to new world stages. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um,
1: Okay, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com, and there's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to, find a podcast you can find This Week on Broadway. So, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at broaderradio.com in the show notes, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia?
2: Yeah, the question was, this Tony Losing musical opened precisely on the 30th birthday of the artist who drew its logo. Who was he and what was the musical? The artist was David Edward Byrd, who designed the best logo ever, Follies, because he was born on April 4th, 1941, 30 years to the day before Follies opened. Um, and let me tell you how I, uh, this came up. Um, ironically enough, uh, when I was on the plane going to London a few weeks ago, there was a documentary about posters, movie posters. And um, it's called 24 by 36. And uh, David Byrd was on it. And I said um, when I went uh, with friends uh, to see the royal family at Broadway, gee, you know, um, he, he looks like a hippie. Um, he has the do rag on, he has beads, all that kind of stuff. Could this be the same guy who did the logo for Follies? And I said, uh, and so. So we checked his birthday, we checked uh, Wikipedia and there was his birthday. So that's how I discovered that. And I think it's so ironic that it should open on uh, 30 days, um, 30 years after his birthday. So Alyssa Maurer was the first to get it, followed by Richard Brennan and John Moss. This week's question, what did these five shows that closed out of town, all of them closed out of town, have in common? Annie Two, The Baker's Wife, Buscar Alley. The Miracle Workers 2003 revival with Hillary Swank and Paper Moon.
1: Okay, if you have an answer to this, email us at tribute at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye
0: in land. First it felt like flying, now it's left you crying, and trying not to fall to pieces. Yeah, well, sometimes, sometimes life gets out of hand. Before you hit the ground, look for me, I was When your prospects start to worsen, just remember I'm your person, and I'll always be around to catch you before you hit the ground. So now you're standing.